Beanbag Studios presents Nine Stories Up, short-form narrative podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Piermont. Quick warning, this episode contains some strong language and also uncomfortable themes. The homage my co-host Fabs and I paid to sitcoms of our youth in our recent intermission episode was so much fun that we decided to cart out another trope for this bonus overtime episode of season one. When the storytelling of 80s sitcoms ran stale in their third or fourth season, the writers tended to add a new kid or baby to the show. We figured why should Nine Stories Up be any different? We pick up the scene during the taping of that third intermission conversation. You know how we have the theme of like things the internet kind of ruined? Oh yeah. Remember how we kind of talked about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I was thinking about a couple things like that. Oh yeah, no, you guys got said. Oh my what this is Nolan. Oh my goodness, what's up? Hey Nolan. I'm Hunter. Who's this? I still have my mask on. You had your mask on. You guys got your bear shirts on, huh? Yeah, we do. We're we're disappointed. It's good to actually meet you guys. You guys are like twins. So which of you is which of you? So who who is who and how old are you guys? Six, eight. so, but no, but say your name because now I'm now I'm still confused. Well, well, one at a time. Yeah, slow down, slow down. Say it, say it real slow. I'm Brandon, aka Bob. No, you're not Bob, dude. AKA <laughs> also known as. Also, you no, know, we know what AKA means. Hey, um, why don't you say really what your name is? Oh, come on. Brandon. No, no, say you don't need to scream because there's a microphone right here. All you have to do oh. is say, "Hey, I'm Landon." I'm Landon. Yeah, and then you can say, I'm Nolan. That's better. How old are you, Nolan? I'm eight. You're eight. And Landon, oh. that makes you, that makes you what, five? Six. Six. Sorry. I missed yeah. the, I missed the math on that. When, you know, we were, when we had, first had Charlie, right? And that's a hard time for the older sibling. Did you guys do anything? Yes, yes. No, with Nolan. Um, we talked about it. We talked about it. I don't know if we wanted to make it like such a big deal. Yeah. Um, it was interesting. Like I spent a lot more time with Nolan, you know, kind of hanging out. But yeah. I think he kind of liked that, you know, that yeah. one-on-one. Um, that maybe he, I don't know. It wasn't that he wasn't getting it, but we were kind of, you know, busy and whatnot. I'm trying to think if we didn't. Felicity probably said we did. And I just don't remember. Well, when my father was out there, he said out visiting us, he said to Jackson, he said, he said, he said, now you get to be something, you get to be something that I'm not, you get to be a big brother. And he, and it's at the, at the time, it sounded like just something nice to say to a kid to make it, make him feel special about the fact that he now has to share his parents with a stranger. Right. (laughs) right. (laughs) With a stranger. So you know how we were talking about like, you and I were kind of talking about story ideas for future seasons and whatever, you know what I mean? Like mining it out of people or whatever, right? So I kind of loved the Little League episode I did because it it was about like the unique things about growing up in New York, right? Especially at the time we did that was, that's different than any other place. So... I've been thinking about a few of those maybe for next year. Okay. Because because it's 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 hard enough to get you and I together, like for me to grab seven people, right? It was that was 
I don't know that I could ever pull that off non-pandemic, but it doesn't mean I can't try. So I, um, there was something that I wanted to, I threw out a couple of feelers to people to see if they did parlay sheets when we were in high school. Cause we had parlay sheets in New York city high schools. I can see you throwing up your hands that they didn't have that in Arlington Heights. I mean, I'll tell you what a parlay sheet for me is, uh, going to the racetrack and you're going to do a parlay, you know, and it's a bet. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. Oh, okay. Okay. So parlay sheet was a picture like a big raffle ticket, right? Okay. That the top of it has all the college and pro football games for that week with an underdog, a favorite, a spread, and then home team in caps. Sure. And you circle, you have to do at least three games on these things, and you circle on the bottom the tear-off that goes back to whoever produced the parlay sheets and put them into the high schools. You circle your three teams, and then if you win a three, if you hit all three games, it's five to one. You hit four out of, if you do four, it's ten to one, and they go up like that. And um, it's basically, they, they also have them in Las Vegas. Have you ever been to a sports book in Vegas? Yeah, they- yeah, absolutely. So I, I knew the term, like the yeah. horse races, you could, you could bet on three races in a row and if you got it right, you know. Right, but, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's, what, that's what this was only for football. And okay. it was in our high schools. <laughs> so either the mob or the Chinese mob or someone else would somehow put these sheets into like kids would come into school with like a stack of sheets and they were like your guy that's crazy though no yeah and you would and you would like do the bets and give them money and what was wild was the first they came into the school and then everybody's like did you get a sheet did you get a sheet and like the first week i don't even think i got one because it was so hot you know and one of my friends i was following the games he hit like a seven out of seven the first week and one like $150 on a $1 bet. I was thinking, that's mom, a lot of money for a kid. 150 yeah. bucks is a lot of money for and a kid. And his mother came to school. His mom like took off of work, came to our school to get the money when the kid gave it to him to pay him. So she came to our school to, to collect his gambling winnings off of this. Wait, because she was upset? Or no, because... because she didn't want him to get robbed on the way home with the $150. Wow. So his mom's in on it. His mom was like, if you're getting $150, she's not going to argue with that. And she's like, I'm coming to school to bring that home for you. Yeah. That's a good good mom. That's a good mom. Yeah. So, so we had these and I think I did them for most of my, they kind of petered out by my senior year, I want to say, but I I did them like sophomore, junior year for sure. And um, I reached out to some of my friends and it was kind of a lukewarm yeah, I saw him. I remember him. I did him. Whatever. You know, like no one was as excited about talking about it as I was. And I realized after I after I thought about it that what I the reason that they meant so much to me was that it was the closest I ever was with my uncle. Okay. So my oh. uncle, my dad's older brother, my uncle was um he lived on Long Island, right? And I would see him, I lived in the city, I would see him three or four times a year, you know, and he was the kind of guy, this was like, like when they, when that movie Uncle Buck came out, I'm like, are they paying him royalties for his, you know what I mean? Like it was, uh, that was, that was the kind of guy he was. So my dad was like the straight laced, 
owns his business, has the family. You know what I mean? Like my dad had his shit together. My uncle, I would like, his car was a fucking mess. There were like Twinkies on the floor. There was like, I would go to his house and play in television. He smoked and could blow like all these crazy smoke rings. And he always had certs on him because he smoked. Like, what do your parents think about that? Like the fact that you had an uncle that smoked, like, was that a big deal or not? Well, it was, this was like 1978. My dad smoked too. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So okay. yeah, no, that okay. was definitely a, that was, that was a, a product of the times, you know, that, that was, that was, um, that was what it was, but it was just so weird. Like when I, when John Candy came out with that role, I was like, holy crap, there's my uncle, you know? And so we would, I would see him, you know, probably a little bit more during the summer if we would get him to go to a Yankee game or so, you know, but it was just, you know, a few times a year. And then after my parents divorced, like there's one story from when I was a baby where I didn't go to church. I stayed home with him and he let me eat all the Christmas candy. And I was just like a two-year-old terror the whole night. And so that was, that was, um, oh my gosh, that, to frame it for you there. Right. So talk about a guy who doesn't have kids, you know, yeah, and it's no, like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. of course you can have candy. What's, <laughs> what's the worst that can happen? You're going to stop um, bothering me if I give you the candy, right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. S sidebar, sidebar comment. Uh, before we had kids, I took my nephew who was three to like the Muppets, the movie, the Muppets, mm -hmm. right? There's a quick sidebar. And he got scared. It was a little too much for him. Three year old. Like, what kind of idiot am I? I'm thinking I'm going to take him to the theater. He's going to love this movie. So instead, I get him like the most massive ice cream. It was like probably as big as his head. And then I dropped him off at my sister's and was like, I'm out. See you later. <laughs> and no kids at the time didn't realize what I had just done to them. He's now afraid of this movie. <laughs> and he's crazy what you speaking of your story of like getting fed all sorts of sugar yeah, yeah. You're, you're you're like my uncle i'm like uncle buck yeah so anyway, sorry no don't don't apologize don't apologize so there was one night there's one my dad when after my parents divorced my dad on before i would go to georgia with my mother for christmas my dad my uncle and i would get together on christmas eve and this was a few year you know a couple of years after the divorce or in the it was still pretty raw or whatever i guess yeah yeah and we'd like run out of wrapping paper and we wrapped the shirt we got my uncle but we didn't wrap the one we got my dad and my dad flipped out and like all this baggage from their marriage came pouring out and they got into the single biggest fight i've ever seen like it was the it was the, the scariest thing i had seen and i remember my uncle like they were just having it out. I think my I think my mom slapped my dad at one point during it. Like it was crazy. Your and, mom? Yeah. And my uncle, my uncle just took me back to my room. And I remember he just had me shooting. I had gotten a basketball the year before and he had me shooting at the big wicker basket. He put it up on the bed and I was just shooting buckets with him in the bedroom, like while all hell broke loose out there, you know? But the reason that I think of him with the parlay sheets was because his job, like what he did for a living was gave out gambling advice. Like people would pay him to give them gambling advice on games to bet on. So I would call him, I would get the sheets on, the sheets would come out on Monday or Tuesday. We'd talk on Tuesday. We'd go through all the college and all the pro games. And then we'd ruminate for two days. We'd check back on Thursday because the, 
that sheets were due back on Friday. And we would just go through game by game and, and we'd talk about it. You know, we'd spend like hour and a half on the phone at least going through the games. And so I'm thinking that that's why I like the parlay sheets better than all my friends did, like why it had some sentimental value to me. But that got me thinking about, you know, what my uncle did for a living was pretty crazy. You know, like it was, it was kind of like not a, not a straight and narrow thing that, that he did. And so I decided, you know, I've, I've recently started to get back in touch with him. Um, we didn't talk a lot from the, in the, from like the late nineties on. And, um, you know, I think I talked to him a couple times. One of the times I talked to him, um, he opened, he threw out my first wedding invitation that had like calligraphy and all that hand calligraphied. And he was, and he was like, yeah, I don't know anybody in Boca Raton. So I threw it out. My dad's like, it was a wedding invitation, but I used that as an end to call him before I went to Vegas for my bachelor party. And we did it one more time. Like we looked through the games and he gave me like, I hit seven out of eight on the Saturday of my bachelor party. And I still remember the game he lost. He lost Arizona state had 10 at, at Washington state. He said, take Arizona state in the points. And they got blown out. I remember watching it at Caesars palace. I was just like, Oh, but yeah. So I've gotten back in touch with him and I decided to talk to him, see if he could tell me some stories because I'm, I have bad, you know, sort of hazy memories of it, but some of the stuff got pretty crazy if I remembered it correctly. All right. Now we're recording. Um, do you remember when you started with them? Uh, with Sports Report, I started in 1978. And was that your first time in the, like, because I remember, I remember back when I would do parlay sheets in high school, you said that you did them in college, like you ran one, didn't you? See, what happened, I, I started working for Racing Star Weekly and a company called Winning Points in 1972 when I got out of college. The owner, one of the owners, split and opened up Sports Reporter on the island. So I went with him. What was Racing Star Weekly? Sports racing. Okay, and you would and you would write about which horses to take, like what the yeah, horses all, were doing. All, all gambling, all, all all couch stuff, you know, betting. Well, everything was betting. Everything I did was about betting, you know, racing or whatever. How did you get involved with that? With who? With what? With, with racing because I love horse racing, so I applied for a job right after when I got out of college in May of '72. It was actually I got the job the same day uh, uh, George Wallace got shot. How I remember, if you know who George Wallace was. Yeah, he was the segregationist, racist, right? Yeah, it's racist governor of Alabama. Yeah, my dad used to tell a story about how one day, one week, you set the lines in Vegas. What was That's that? A, I, I think that was, well, we, we used to, we, we knew people, we knew people who knew people. So we had one guy that was somebody who did our, and he, he, he did a lot of work for us. He was a, uh, he basically set the line in New York and they would pick it up and use it in Vegas. And we helped him make the line all the time. He was a, he was a street guy, but he was very respected as far as gamblers go. So when he would come out with a price, say the Giants are seven, they would get it in Vegas because he said it was it would be seven. But we used to give him information 
to make the line on a lot of games. Information on what people were doing or what was happening with the Giants. Yeah, just on different games. Injuries, things like that. There was no internet then, so you had to do all this legwork. There was no, there was, as far as information goes, it was limited information. You had to actually get other papers from out of town and talk to people and, you know, find out. I used to listen to games. I used to listen to basketball games at two in the morning from uh, San Diego and things, and I'd hear somebody got hurt. That next day we'd know that the person was hurt, but the, there wasn't widespread information on that. Nobody knew about it. So we found out things like that. So everything, it was like doing honest-to-goodness reporting. Yeah, it was, it was legwork. That's what it was. It was legwork. You had, we used to get this guy who used to help make the line for everybody. His name was, they called him D or Dello because he used to hang out at Delicatessen. Old, older Jewish guy, but people thought he was Italian. But he used to every morning he would go to Times Square and he would pick up about thirty newspapers from out of town, and he would read them all, read all the sports to see who, just to read it because it was no. Think about it, 1970, 1971. There was no information. It wasn't even sports phone. It was nothing. You just got a score and a box score, but nobody knew what happened during the game unless you actually were there or you were lived in that town. So he would go through all these newspapers, Boston, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, Kansas City, Detroit, wherever there was a pro team. And that's how he would determine the line. He would do a lot of it in our office. He would come up there with a stack of papers every day. And then, so then after you, so you guys would help him set the line, then you would yes. write your articles about which one was the best to bet on? Of course. <laughs> isn't there a but, little bit of but it was a, it was well it really didn't have see with basket that's only good with football because the articles we wrote were all on football okay. so sunday night was a crazy night because we were scrambling for information and this and that but basketball was the one we could really make money on because nobody knew what was going on football there was always information out there but basketball was a daily thing college basketball pro basketball it's a daily event but we didn't write about it for the most part. You couldn't. It's it's crazy that people would actually gamble on it, not with that limited amount of information. Well, that's why they that's why they would call us because we had information, you know. So they would call us and we would tell them who we liked, whatever, whatever, and they they felt that we had information that they they wouldn't have had. That's why they paid for the service. So, so it was a subscription service that allowed you to call the office as well as get the published right. paper? Right, right, exactly. They subscribed, and then for the phones, for the daily, the daily stuff, they paid extra money for that. But that's, I, I, those kind of services are gone now. That's a dinosaur. There's very few of them because the Internet took everything away. Right. There's no more secrets. Anybody can bet. You can bet. You can bet legally with DraftKings and FanDuel and all those things. You're not in New York, but other states you can. So it's it's all it's different now. It's not yeah, like I said. It's it's like the dinosaurs. So you at some point decided to go out on your own, right? After, when I was in high yeah. school, didn't you? Didn't you start yes. your own? Mm, yeah, my wife Pam and I. She she helped me, and this guy is all oh, this friend of mine from the old days in New York. Well, Andy, we had we opened up a service ourselves, but didn't 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 make it. No, no, because the guy who backed us, he, he was he was a he was a gambler, but he was a big manufacturer, and uh, 
Hurricane Hugo in 1989 wiped out his factories in North Carolina and uh, in South Carolina, one of the Carolinas, I think North Carolina, he was in Charlotte. And uh, Hurricane Hugo wiped them out. And so he got wiped out and he didn't want to put any money up for us anymore. That was it. So did you go back to Sports Reporter after that? No, I, I, what did I do that? I went to, uh, I guess I worked for this, I worked for this guy who had this big company. He's still around. And, uh, but then that was it. Then I started, and then I worked for telemarketing companies and things after that. Got out of the business. But now it's different with, with fantasy and everything. It's much, it's, it, it, like I said, I don't even know if I would want to be in the business anymore. Right. Because fantasy was a lot of fun when I used to do it. But I stopped did, You that. You actually did fantasy football? DraftKings, yeah. I get bored with it, though. And I never bet a lot. I used to bet quarters and things like games. But I, I just got tired of that, too. I remember when, when I used to call you to do parlay sheets. I remember. When they, I remember. When they were in the schools, we would talk like twice yeah. a week. I don't think they have those anymore either. They probably don't have any of that stuff. It's I know you have question. them in Vegas. They have them in Vegas. They yeah. did in 2007. I was out there during football season, and they did. You know, individual sports books do have the correlations because I played a couple. I remember that. And I'm assuming you can parlay anything on the on the websites, right? I mean, I, I bet you can parlay oh, whatever. You can do anything just, you want. Any, there's there's no limits the to what you can do. Yeah. Like I said, I would be lost as far as what they do now. Was there ever anything like dangerous that happened with you guys? No, no, no not with us. No, no, because we didn't take action, and mm -hmm. you know we did stuff all around the country. We didn't. We never hit anything. We used we used a regular address, not a post office box. You know, there was and real names. There was no there was no phony names and stuff. All was on the up and up. Was your batting average good enough that no one ever got PO'd? People used to get PO'd all the time. Oh, yeah. People used to cry, yeah. People, people lose a lot of money. You know, yeah. on a pick, and he, I used to feel terrible. But, you know, you get hardened after a while. That's why I went into collections, because it, e it was easier than that. That's crazy. That collections yeah, yeah. was easier. That, right? Yeah, it was, it was, collections was easier on my mind than it was. I'd rather... I'd rather collect from someone who legitimately owes money than tell someone to bet $10,000 on a game tonight and lose it. Oh, yeah. Forget about it. That waves on your conscience. The roots of my uncle's interest in coaching and gambling trace to his college days at Kentucky Wesleyan. The randomness of this selection intrigued me, but the explanation shouldn't have surprised me. How else would Uncle Buck pick a college? Why did you, why did you pick Kentucky Wesleyan of all places? It just seems like a... It because just seems it, like a, uh, like, to, especially because you, you already talked about how at that time there was no internet, right? So there was no reach. 19, how in the world did you come to this tiny division because, two? Because I went to high school, the military school where I went. We had a horrible, bat. all sports were bad, but basketball was horrible. We won one game a year and it was always against the same team, right? So we were always like one and 11, one and 12. I saw Sports Illustrated one day about the school Kentucky Wesleyan, this little school beating Southern Illinois or losing to Southern Illinois and Walt Frazier by a point. 
and that's when Southern Illinois was great. I didn't realize Wesleyan won the, then I looked into them and they had won the title, the Division II title, uh, College Division title the year before. So I said, up. Oh. I applied to them in October of, I got a brochure and I got, I applied to them in October and I got accepted in November because they, they did an outreach of uh, Eastern kids. So, I mean, there was, there was 300 kids from Jersey, New York, and, Cali and, and New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut, and Pennsylvania. There was 300 freshmen, when I, incoming freshmen my freshman year. Yeah. All going to Kentucky Wesleyan. But I went to the basketball team. And then how many years did you spend at Carson Long? Six. Six. Yeah. So you were there from like 62 to 68, and then... 61 to 67. Okay. And then 67 to 71 at Kentucky Wesleyan. Yeah. I never knew I never knew the story of how you ended up there. That's how I ended up. Team. Good basketball. I, I tell people, why did you pick us? Because they had a good basketball team. People look at me like I was crazy. It was, it was the best four years I ever had. And you and you coached IM football, right? You didn't play, you coached a team? No, my freshman year. I was going to play freshman football, you know, freshman in the football. And I got my, I got banged. My knee got banged. And I realized, I said, you know, I didn't even play. I could have played Carson Long, but I didn't. But I said, I said, I, these are all good kids. We didn't have a football team at Wesleyan. So these are all kids who could play in Division Three football. A lot of them played in high school. I said, it's out of my class. And I said, no, I'm not playing. Too fast for me, way too fast. And I smoked then too. So if I could run 50 yards without having a heart attack, it would be great. So I, I said, no, I can't, I can't do this. So I didn't play. But I coached for two years. You coached? But, but the, just coached think about you coached IMs. Like, <laughs> that's rare. We, yeah, but in your football, it, when you don't have a football team, you'd have five, 600 people watching an Amira football game. That was a big, that was a big, amazing thing at Wesleyan. I mean, when there was a game between two big fraternities, you had 500 people watching. And was it, was it touch or was it full pad tackle? Flag, 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 flag. Okay. rough flag too. Yeah. Eight man to a side, but it was, it was tough. You know, there was free rush. And, yes. Real blocking, you know, real, real plays. I mean, there was no, you know, it wasn't pansy ass stuff. That's wild. I, I coached the first independent team to ever win a title at Wesleyan in American football. Fraternities had always won for like 30 years, and I coached the first independent team to win. That had never happened before because independents were always helter-skelter. They had no coordination. Right. So they came to me and said, you want to coach us? I said, okay. And we won. So you like made a playbook. And everything. Oh yeah, every place and everything. We won the title and ever everybody's like, but you know, I was, I was the man. <laughs> they, they used to call me. They used to call me Bear. But I, no, but in college, I always had. I always had a. Uh, I like to gamble. I just I like the thought of just winning money or making money. And you didn't have to do anything for it. So a friend of mine and I, he was the backer and I was the odds maker, and we used to publish a sheet. We used to do one of those little parlay tickets and give it to people. It was like, we, we only charged like 50 cents to a dollar. They didn't have to, because we didn't college kids, we didn't have a lot, a lot of money. So I remember this girlfriend of this guy wiped us out once, that was it. 
So you guys only did only did parlay sheets. You wouldn't take straight up single nah, game we were, bets. Nah, we were, we were bookmakers. We just did the yeah. parlay sheets. Yeah. So nobody nobody knew. I I didn't even know about really taking action like that back then. I just knew about parlay sheets. Did you ever feel? Did you ever feel? Um, because you were, you know, with you being gone, did you ever feel weird that you missed that end of your dad's life? Absolutely. Really? I don't think I didn't my I didn't think about it then. Yeah. I think about it now all the time. All the time. I used to I I because then it, you know, I, I didn't I was didn't you know, I was into me. I didn't really think about that. But now I'd say I'd like to spend an hour just talking. Yeah. You know, because I never talked to him. Your father talked to him. I never talked to him about anything important. I never even talked to him about a lot of about things about sports and things that I say, my God, all the things he could have told me, you know, all the stories. Never, I was into too many, too my being too selfish. So I didn't think about it. I just, now, now it bothers me all the time. As we continued talking, I began to try to zero in on one particular story from my uncle's days in the gambling business. You know, what stopped you guys from just putting the action that you were recommending yourself? Hey, there were there were there were scams that other there were there were scams that other services didn't that did we didn't do, where they used to call it siding. And what they would do is that they would give fifty people who called in Alabama. Let's say Alabama was playing Auburn. They give fifty people Alabama, and they give the next people next fifty people Auburn. So and and the caveat with the pick was that. The winner, if you won the game, you had to pay $100. If you lost the game, you'd have to pay anything. So by giving 50 people Alabama and 50 people- Oh, you guarantee 50, yourself $5,000. Guarantee your, I'm just saying, yeah. usually it's more than $100. It's like $500 right. or whatever. Right, but you're right. guaranteeing- no, no, just In your example, $5,000. Right. And it, was, and it was illegal. And some, a few services who did that, they got busted because I didn't gamble. But I, I stopped gambling. I, I gambled only a little bit. But my yeah. boss, he gambled. There was a lot of people I never gambled and my, who I worked with. I just yeah. didn't gamble. I gambled a little bit, but not a lot because I didn't want to lose. Yeah. So my, you know, if I gambled, it all would be on horses and a little football. I, I, I bet the parlay sheets more than anything. Mm -hmm. But I never, and I had access to bookmakers if I wanted to really bet money, but I wouldn't do it. And I, I just said, no, that's not me. Yeah, back when I was doing it, I was like, I remember telling you, I was, I'll never forget this. I was like, yeah, it's crazy watching your money take the field. And you're like, it's called the fever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. So when you, so like when you, there was like a time where you like split for a while. You were okay during that? Like that wasn't, there wasn't something crazy and shady going on? What do you mean? You like disappeared from Pam for a minute. I don't remember how long it was. I think I was in college, so I was so I went, wrapped I up left, in myself by then. Yeah, I went. I, I got all of that was that was all mental stuff and things. I got into trouble and and uh, I went to Vegas for a while. Then I wound up in Kentucky and I came home. I was for three months, just September to November. That's all. But what? But there was that was just that was just you going on a trip. That was not. No, me getting money. I got in trouble with horses. I had to borrow money. So I had a, I couldn't pay it back. So I had to, to leave, so to speak. 
but that's you know that's that was the dark days yeah very dark, dark days, days but that's intriguing what the heck well i you know and then i i was in vegas for a couple of weeks and then i went to kentucky where i knew i'd be all right and and so did but did anybody come after you was anybody no. like were you avoiding no. people I was avoiding people, but yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't guys who were going to kill me or anything. You, know, <laughs> but you never know. I mean, you, you really don't know. It's a long time ago. It's 25 yeah. years ago. So I don't think about it. It was, it was, it was eight weeks that were, you know, uh, shaky. When I first heard that story from my father, who I have intentionally excluded from this episode in both a speaking or fact-checking capacity. It was way more intriguing. For the sake of my homemade hobby storytelling podcast, I was hoping my uncle would give you the version that had my father's guts wrenching when my uncle told him the story after finally resurfacing to make contact with his wife and brother. The story my dad told me was a chase story that spanned the country and featured threats at gunpoint where my uncle had to use his wits to escape. But I suppose when you're just the guy who knows the guy who knows a guy, that stuff really doesn't actually happen. The real story happened when my concerned and affected father reached out to my uncle's host to see how he could help. And the guy was like, Dennis, David's been here the whole time. You may have noticed a pattern in my uncle's representation of things like, I didn't gamble. I would just bet the horses and do parlay sheets. That's his nephew making light of it 25 years later. To his brother at the time, this was the last straw in a repetitive chain of compulsive pathological lying. My father pulled back, and my uncle doesn't fight for relationships. Just like that, two and a half decades of periodic estrangement were set in motion. My uncle has never met my wife, my kids, or even my sister who was born a few years after this incident happened. My uncle's lying and emotional disabilities find their root in his early family life. My grandmother was about 20 years younger than my grandfather and never forgave him for being old. She was an alcoholic who would disappear and have affairs, leaving an old man with two little kids to go to the diner and say whatever needed to be said to explain to whoever was asking why their mother wasn't with them. When she would eventually get home and the kids were in bed, that is when all hell would break loose. I remember my mother telling me something my uncle said to her once that went the way of, you don't know what it's like to not want to go to sleep because you are afraid your parents are going to kill each other. My grandparents had to know that this had broken my uncle. Why else would you send a kid away to school for basically a decade, the last of decade of his father's life? Somehow, though, it didn't break my father. My father managed to find his way through counseling, Al-Anon, church mentors, to figure out a way to break the cycle of brokenness. Because he did that, it allowed me and my siblings to grow up in houses free of traumatic dysfunction and then allow for my children to do the same. I thought about what made this difference, and the only conclusion I can come to is that it was my uncle. He didn't said whatever was necessary as the older brother to get his little brother through whatever horrible thing was happening in that living room. Veracity was of secondary importance at best, and probably downright counterproductive. It's what he was doing when he had me shoot buckets at the wicker laundry basket, while all hell broke loose in the living room of my childhood. It's why my father celebrated the role of big brother to my three-and-a-half-year-old older son, 
and what I watched that son do when I moved him across the country at age 10. Focusing his energy on making sure this seismic event would be okay for his six-year-old brother. While the layers of my father's seven-decade-long relationship with my uncle are thick and beyond the scope of this podcast, I lost touch with my uncle out of inertia and nothing more. Unlike the fictional Uncle Buck, who decides to sacrifice for his brother's children in a dramatic, frenzied sequence, my real-life Uncle Buck came to my rescue decades before I even became his nephew, simply by being someone else's big brother. I see this now, as well as the fact that I still have time to text about the, how the Giants can never beat the Eagles or what he thinks about anything else. I was landing as a little brother, Nolan. Uh, he's uh, good. He likes to build, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he likes to engineer stuff. Wow, listen to that vocabulary. Uh, um, he likes to play, um, he likes to play Cackle. Cackle? Uh, yeah. me. Yeah, so, so I tackle him on the couch, and then he's like, help, help, and then I'm like, and I just let go immediately so they don't find out. So the grown-ups don't find out. Nine Stories Up is written and produced by me, Hunter Piermont, in association with Beanbag Studios in Holly Springs, North Carolina. Our theme music is Short Stories by the great Harry Chapin, licensed and graciously provided by Warner Chapel Music. Our artwork is provided courtesy of Jack Aguirre. You can find Jack's freelance work at his Instagram page, at colt underscore myc. If you have a story to tell, you can email us at ninestoriesup at gmail.com or reach out to us on the major social media platforms at Nine Stories Up. As always, I would like to thank Brian Babulus for co-hosting and being my partner in crime for this project. And I'd especially like to thank Landon and Nolan Babulus for taking part in this episode. And finally, I'd like to thank my uncle, David Piermont. I wasn't sure going through this what he would think, but I think he summed it up the best himself. I wish there was a way that those that what you did didn't just disappear, right? It's so crazy. Yeah, but I don't know. That's just, it's, in a lot of ways, it's better like that. It's like, you know, dinosaur bones. It's right. a story, but there's a story, yeah. but you have to basically make up the story. Right. Because right. you find dinosaur bones, but who, who was this monster? What did he do? You know, that's yeah. the same thing as this. It's, yeah. There's no difference at all. It's just, it's not as long ago, but it might as well be.